นโมทัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะกุวะทูอะระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะOr a translation of Ajahn Chah's teaching, which says that enlightenment can happen whether you're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. Uh, some people think a lot, and when they sit in meditation, their mind is not peaceful. But through contemplation of happiness and suffering, they can still come to know truth for themselves directly. This is a a very uh, compassionate and uh, helpful gift that Ajahn Chah has given us. I'm sure it speaks to uh, many of us who uh, will have uh, felt inspired and encouraged by the possibility of of engaging in meditation practice and and. and Having access to a radiantly peaceful, beautiful mind, only to find that the whole thing is one endless struggle, and then feel guilty about it. And Ajahn Chah is telling us there's no need to feel guilty about it. Yeah, a, yeah. Concentrating on the end of your nose and uh, using that willful application of attention to steady the mind is not the only way. To access reality, um, and this uh, short extract from Ajahn Chah's teaching is saying that it's quite possible that you know, through the cultivation of contemplation, you know, using the vehicle of contemplation rather than concentration, in other words, to discipline this thinking process that we're all very familiar with, that perhaps we feel tortured by, rather than making an enemy out of it, to engage it in a Skillful way, tame it, direct it, steward it, apply it in the investigation of our experience of here. He suggests the experience of happiness and suffering uh, until you see beyond the way things appear to be and see truth directly. So we can feel uh, once again very grateful to Ajahn Chah for his skillful pointing. Uh, a way of applying ourselves to practice that hopefully we find works. Yeah. Uh, that's what really matters: is this teaching, is this training working for us? We we have faith, we have trust, we have confidence, we have energy, we have hope. 
we have some degree of discernment, we have access to the theoretical teachings, how can we combine all of this together and arrive at the experience, the opening of heart and mind and the realisation of true self-existent contentment? So Ajahn Chah is pointing out again, enlightenment can happen at any time, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. We don't have to become overly obsessed, contorting ourselves into uncomfortable postures that we think are more spiritual than what we're used to and, and hope that we're going to arrive somewhere, somewhere special. We can, in fact, hurt ourselves with such an obsession. As we heard this morning in the uh, community reading of Ajahn Chah's teaching, which we have each Sunday morning, uh, Ajahn Chah is talking about studying the natural mind, the everyday mind, the experience of happiness and suffering. Once again, using the thinking process that we have in a contemplative way, not being a slave to the mental proliferations, but cultivating contemplation. And we want to know the difference between uh, contemplation and proliferation. Mm -hmm. Be sitting there and engaging the active thinking mind. Is this just proliferation or is this what they mean by contemplation? Well, the barometer I like to use with this is with contemplation we can stop and start. We can ask a question and then come into the body, feel the way. How does that sit? How does that feel? The language of contemplation when it's matured is a, is a very quiet feeling investigation. It might start off as engaging the mental verbiage that we're used to, disciplining that mental verbiage, directing our attention by way of inner dialogue, but in a quiet, intentional, gentle, interested manner. But as it deepens, as it matures, it gets even quieter and quieter and becomes a feeling investigation. And so if it's contemplation, we can stop the talking, the inner talking, and feel inwardly, listen inwardly. If it's proliferation, which is uh, far less productive and perhaps just more confusing, then we can't stop it and this goes on and on and on. So it's a helpful barometer. What what am I engaged with here? Is this contemplation or proliferation? And it's a very important tool. if If we don't have access to this tool, then we can't be sure what we're doing. And we, we could be carrying all sorts of uh, beliefs and attitudes, uninspected beliefs and attitudes, which can have very serious consequences. But if we have this tool of, of wise contemplation, this is part of our spiritual toolkit, we come across some obstruction, we start to hear the echoes or reverberations of some underlying view, we can question that. What is this? What is this 
feeling of this underlying feeling that there's something inherently wrong with me that has to be fixed. What is this? It's like, well, there's deep lacking, this big hole inside that has to be filled with something. What if we don't inspect that? We can be very vulnerable to the purveyors of all sorts of peculiar religious beliefs that promise to fill that gap. That's certainly not what the Buddha was offering. The Buddha was encouraging us to cultivate this skill of wise contemplation and quietly, feelingly investigate that sort of feeling. There's something lacking. Instead of just following the impulses of desires to fill it up, we can trace that feeling of frustration back inwards and look at maybe these basic uninspected beliefs, uninspected views that we all carry. Now, if we don't inspect them, as I was saying, they can have very serious consequences. and We need this facility to be able to inquire for ourselves. You know, we're not all the same. Yeah. You know, again, to quote Ajahn Chah, he, he would say, uh, sometimes you know, people drive slowly and safely and when they drive fast, they have accidents. Other people drive fast and safely and when they drive slow, they have accidents. People are different. Some people are tall, some people are short. It doesn't mean to say that the, the short ones are somehow deformed or the tall ones are somehow deformed. You know? You could say, why, why isn't everybody six foot tall? It's not fair that some people are five foot five. They can't reach the high shelves. You know, or six foot six, you know. It's not fair. Some people are six foot six. They've got an unfair advantage. Well, this is how life is. We're actually all somewhat different. And so in the gauging the spiritual exercises, the Buddha wanted us to find out what works. Ajahn Turidamo in his talk last Sunday was talking about practicing in a way that works. It's what works that matters. And if we don't have the tool of wise contemplation available to us, how do we know what works? It's like eating an apple without checking to see if it's ripe. You you get a stomachache. We wouldn't do that. Normally we wouldn't do that. You know, we check to see is it right. Well, that's a form of wise contemplation. We need to we need to refine that ability we have, that aspect of our human intelligence. We need to refine it down and take it inwards. Or if you're if you're somebody who's into rock climbing, you know, you know very well that you know that protruding outcrop up there that you grab a hold of and you, you're about to put your whole body weight on you really, you check it first you check it, you know, little by little you check it, how do you check it? you don't sit there or stand there thinking, you don't think is that outcrop of rock going to take my weight, this thinking is not going to do it you know, the way it appears, it might look like that outcrop of rock might look like it can take my whole body weight how do we know if that outcrop of rock can take my whole body weight? We feel it. We feel it. You don't have to think very much. In fact, you've got to stop thinking. Really feel it in the body. Oh, yeah, now that's safe. And similarly, 
with some of these inner attitudes and beliefs that we uh, have been conditioned by, we need to be able to contemplate them. Are they stable? Are they dependable? If not, then we can get ourselves into a lot of unnecessary suffering. So being able to contemplate for ourselves, being able to investigate whether these underlying (coughs) assumptions, underlying beliefs, serve our aspiration for liberation, or are they undermining us? The way we may have heard the the Buddhist teachings in the beginning may have conditioned us to think, oh, I've got to just sit there and concentrate at the end of my nose and make my mind peaceful and... Any thought that comes up, just get rid of it. Any feeling comes up, bypass it. That might work for some people. They might progress rapidly and realize a state of profound clarity and stillness and bliss and learn to read their heart and mind in a way that gives rise to wisdom. For other people, that effort just makes them cross-eyed and dizzy it gives them a headache and they end up feeling like a failure Um, well uh, thankfully Ajahn Chah is pointing out that we don't need to feel guilty about that there's nothing wrong with this we just need another approach Mm. we need to question some of the basic assumptions you know like the assumption for instance that, that we're entitled to be happy that we're conditioned within our culture. Is that really helpful? Yeah. We read the Buddha's teachings, and as uh, Ajahn Jyoti Pala was commenting last night on reference to the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta that we chanted, you know, the Buddha's teachings of the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about applying attention to the experience we all know of limitation, frustration, suffering. The Buddha encourages us to bring close attention to this. We all know this. We probably all know that the Buddha said, you know, through not seeing two things that you stay stuck in this unfortunate circumstance of samsara. Through not seeing two things. He didn't say you have to study the 84,000 Dhamma doors and become realized. There's not seeing two things. Not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So we know that, and we have faith in the Buddha's teachings, and yet, if we're not careful, we can be entertaining this idea that we're supposed to be happy the whole time, and if we're not happy, we're failing. Well, that's one of those uninspected beliefs, one of those uninspected uh, attitudes that we got conditioned with mm. by the consumer society, mm. the society we all got brought up in. It's really worth questioning that. We're not entitled to be happy. You know, again, as followers of the Buddhist path, we have confidence in the law of karma. You know, we, uh, karma is what determines our state of well-being, uh, not just the fact that we want to be happy. Mm. So, being able to uh, being able to reflect for ourselves, this reflective intelligence, is a tool really worth developing, not just willful concentration and or not 
just the initial approach that we have for meditation, for instance. Something might work initially and then stop working. Something might take us so far in practice and then stop working. The same as anything else in life. You can start by playing the piano with very simple exercises and learning the scales and learning to play a few modest pieces on the piano and, and you get confident, but you don't have to keep playing you know, the scales or some of the early Mozart piano pieces. You can you know, get a little bit daring, get a little creative. And you know, Also, it doesn't mean that you suddenly start doing a public performance of Rachmaninoff. I mean, that would be a little bit grandiose. In which, and that's another assumption, assumption that we can, we can fall prey to, another belief you know, that somehow we're special. It's a very common belief, a very common attitude in our culture that gets in the way, seriously gets in the way of our uh, cultivation of understanding, cultivation of contentment, cultivation of insight, cultivation of clear seeing. If we think we're special, if we really believe we're special and we're entitled to get all the insights, get all the understanding on our own terms, we're probably going to get very frustrated and very disappointed. Insight, clarity, contentment arise in accordance with Dhamma, in accordance with reality, not in accordance with our preferences. But if we don't have this skill of wise contemplation developed, then we're not going to be checking to see, is this working or not? We're just going to be hammering away on the basis of these uninspected beliefs. Probably most of you will be familiar with the recorded teachings of the dialogue between the Buddha and his son Rahula. The Buddha was giving some instruction to his son and asked Rahula, he said, what is the purpose of a mirror, Rahula? The Buddha's son replies to him and said, a mirror is for seeing your face in. And the Buddha said, well, when it comes to seeing the mind, understanding the mind, what works is wise contemplation. Mm-hmm. If we're interested in what works when it comes to seeing the mind, is you know, cultivating this wise contemplation. Wise contemplation is for seeing the mind. Yeah. So checking to see what works. And if we do that, well then... We're not only not only are we not going down a, a path that's tightening the tangles of our contracted heart muscle uh, and leading to more disappointment and frustration, uh, we're discovering increased confidence. You know, we're discovering a, a sense of the ability to take responsibility for our own spiritual practice. And just because somebody else didn't teach us how to meditate doesn't mean to say we can't meditate. You know, we all, each of us, all have permission to find our own way of meditating, our own way of entering the temple. This temple here, this Dhamma Hall, has got many doors. And coming through any one of them, whichever one works, is fine. We don't all have to come in through the same door. What matters is that we find our way into the temple, in this case, the inner temple, which is the place where we can take our challenges, take our difficulty, take our utterly impossible conundrums, you know, that feeling of I can't take this anymore, that is the growing tip 
that's the point where understanding can really arise. Sadly, regrettably, many people get to the point of, I can't stand this anymore, and they simply believe it. They believe in the image of I and not being able to stand it and turn away and revert to some initial condition, belief about how inherently limited they are, and that's missing the point. The very point, the growing point, the growing tip, where maybe something could have opened up and they may have discovered something really new and really relevant. So to be able to make the most of those opportunities when we get to the point of I can't stand this anymore and we don't turn away from it and don't default to grasping and finding some security in conditioned beliefs and attitudes, but we stay there, we open up and hold the feeling of frustration do what the Buddha asked us to do, invite us to do, which is be mindful of this experience of limitation. Pay attention to dukkha. If we can do that, well then maybe we discover what the Buddha was wanting us to discover, which is our own way into the temple, our own way into contentment. So finding what works, um, when we do discover it, to any degree, uh, incremental moments or or mind-blowing moments, people again are different. Just because one person has one mind-blowing moment and that's it for the rest of their life, it doesn't mean to say it's going to be like that for everybody. For other people, it's a series of incremental moments of opening, of discovering. But whenever it happens, uh, we're increasing also in a feeling of gratitude for the opportunity to cultivate this path. And an increase in confidence that we can rely on. Not the egotistical confidence... Not the confidence that's going to take us to burn out, because that, there is that kind of confidence. The initial confidence, which is very relative, and it depends on beliefs we have. And the beliefs we have that Buddhism is best is very unreliable. Even if Buddhism is best, which I happen to believe, but if we cling to that belief, uh, we're going to crash and burn. Uh, Belief is something that happens in our heads. and uh, Faith or sadha or trust or confidence is, is what happens in our hearts, which is a different dimension altogether. It's an energy that's felt. It's an energy that motivates. It's, a, it's an ability to fall back and trust that we'll be held as we let go. Mm-hmm. That's, again, very different from belief. I was, I was recently watching a series of uh, very inspiring interviews with uh, this, uh, this musician, uh, Chris Martin. Some of you might know Chris Martin, the front man of Coldplay. And I uh, came to uh, be aware of this fellow and I was impressed with what seemed to be a really wholesome attitude and not what I was familiar with in that kind of genre of artists, I mean, the, the rock heroes of uh, our generation, Arjun Turadama and myself, and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin, they, they didn't last very long, didn't last as long as uh, Chris Martin. So what, what's this guy Chris Martin got going? And watching these interviews, uh, really, really inspiring to see. Here's, here's somebody who's got a, he's got a contemplative life going. You know, he, 
he meditates before he goes on stage, how can he take the projection of 60,000 adoring, loving fans night after night after night and not burn out? Most people burn out. He doesn't burn out. How does he do that? There's not many people who can do that. He fasts one day a week. He only eats six days a week. And one day a week he fasts. Doesn't touch alcohol or caffeine. Does yoga an hour every day. In other words, he recognises the power of the contemplative life, of the inner life, disciplining the heart energy and not just disciplining it in some technical manner we're not talking about all becoming uh, spiritual technicians but rather engaging our own heartfelt interest in a meaningful way our own heartfelt interest in being free from suffering so that's what I read in Ajahn Chah's that's what I hear in Ajahn Chah's teaching Some people, when they sit in meditation, think a lot and don't feel peaceful. But when they come to contemplate happiness and suffering, they can get to know truth directly for themselves. Now, this skill, uh, calling it a skill, obviously indicates that it's something we we can cultivate and should cultivate because the initial level of ability is is rather clumsy probably we're all aware of initial attempts at meditation initial attempts at engaging the spiritual practices and in fact one of the reasons why I I wanted to raise this theme for contemplation this evening was because thinking back to why did I suffer so much in my early years of practice wasn't that I was such a bad guy I mean pretty heedless in some ways but it wasn't you know, totally heedless. Or, you know. Well, a lot of my attitudes were, were really uninspected. A lot of the beliefs I had, like I was saying before, this idea of being entitled to be happy, entitled to have these experiences. You know. Like a lot of people in the 60s and 70s, you, you come across these really uh, zappy Zen stories and Tibetan tankas and, and Theravada meditation techniques and they... They promised this other world of, of, of tremendous ability, spiritual ability. And, and if you're coming from a place of feeling really disabled, suffering from spiritual disability, you know, we can react to this temptation in a really greedy way. And I, I think back now to my reaction was that of a consumer. You know, it was kind of like consuming the sacred, you know. Wanting to get the spiritual books, get the spiritual teachings, get the spiritual experience, get the goodies. Many of us did, back then, travel out to Asia looking to get the goodies. I think if I'm correct, Ajahn Tiridamo travelled all the way overland through Turkey and Iran and Afghanistan and, and then, what is it, circumperambulated India on his bicycle... I'm just, <laughs> just down one coast. Yeah. Daring adventures in pursuit of the spiritual goodies. Yeah. A lot of us did it. And, and we were so enthusiastic. But I don't know about Ajahn Tiridamo, but speaking for myself, I wasn't very reflective. 
It was, uh, it, was, uh, it was, it was kind of like plundering, you know, which is what consumers do. Uh, thinking about this earlier, but the term rampant consumption came to my mind, and so I looked it up on Google. Rampant consumption. I thought, is that a kind of tuberculosis or is it a real word? Rampant consumption. And so I looked it up on Google and sure enough there is a word rampant consumption. But what came up near the top of my Google search was this article on the Telegraph newspaper in defence of rampant consumerism. And uh, the article in the Telegraph was having a go at the Archbishop of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury who were commenting in a less than um, complimentary way uh, the consequences of rampant consumerism. And the Telegraph article was, was praising it. And you know, I, I didn't read very much of the article. It didn't strike me as very balanced. And, uh, but also this word uh, consumption. I found out that uh, this was in another article in the Financial Times. Uh, consumerism was consciously invented in America in the 1920s by the producers who got the idea that if you can persistently create enough wants in the populace, then there'll be this insatiable desire for their goods. And so they generated this culture. And right through since the 1920s, there's probably something along those lines was around long before that, but this was consciously invented and, in fact, it was referred to as the gospel of consumption. And... uh, there's an interesting article about it. and Anyway, this has certainly conditioned my attitude when I was pursuing the spiritual goodies. Yes, I'd read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps and The Way of Zen by Ellen Watts and, and Jnana Moli's the, the teachings on the Buddha's life story and, and it gave rise to a lot of inspiration but also gave rise to a lot of greed and I didn't have the tools, I didn't have the skill to really look at that. You know, I just came across these meditation techniques and then in a greedy manner passionately gave myself to them and did have some interesting experiences. Like a lot of other people travelling around Asia, these you know, the, the gompas and the zendos and the ashrams and the monasteries did have some very interesting experiences. But there's also a lot of people suffered a lot of damage and a lot of casualties. Um, Some of our teachers were impressed with our uh, uh, rampant efforts to attain enlightenment, but the wiser teachers recognised that we were out of control. Thankfully, Ajahn Chah wasn't impressed with our efforts and just treated us like anybody else coming to the monastery. We didn't get any special treatment at all. Mm. In fact, he, he, the special treatment he gave us was like, I think at one stage he, he pointed out that most monks, they're released from dependence on the teacher after five years, but he said, you guys have to wait ten because you're such hard work. <laughs> you're so conceited. And, and most monasteries you'd get in a up on the platform and you bow three times. Sajjan Shah made us bow six times because we were so conceited. And, and so he went in the opposite direction. He wasn't impressed. And his training was really helpful. 
pointing directly at those underlying assumptions we have, those underlying views, those underlying attitudes, which when we don't recognize them, they undermine us. And and yes, uh, people have nervous breakdowns and psychotic breakdowns as a result, and there's a lot of damage. Now, that's not to blame our naive efforts. We did what we did, and it's a pioneer culture, and pioneer cultures have a lot of casualties. And uh, uh, Several people in this room are from Canada and America and New Zealand and Australia, and we're familiar with pioneer culture and the damage that was caused. And I... If you know anything about what happened when the Europeans arrived in New Zealand and they they discovered these wonderful forests of kauri trees. Kauri trees are these phenomenally strong, extraordinary tall, straight giants in the forest. And, And there's just acres, thousands of acres of these wonderful trees. And what do they do? <laughs> they strip felled them. They just went right in there and just whole hillsides stripped them of these beautiful kauri trees. And, and then how do they get them out? Well, they didn't have the heavy machinery they got these days. What they would do was they would find a river and they would build a dam or a small river and build a dam, build a big, strong dam. And then when the water formed a lake, they would fill the lake with all these felled kauri trees, acres and acres of felled trees. And then what would they do? They would break the dam and just let all these trees make it down the riverbed and the ones that made it to the coast they took away and used. The rest, of course, got trashed. And that's um, a rather ghastly image of how pioneer culture has lots of casualties and I think in our initial pursuits of coming across the spiritual teachings of the East, some of us also um, you know, fell into that category. We, we were rather rampant in our approach. But it doesn't mean to say we have to always be that way. Hopefully we learn as we go along. We're checking to see, is this working does this approach work? Yeah. It may be used to work, but is it still working? And by work is, does it bring contentment? Just because my teachers taught this way and it worked for them, does it mean to say it's going to work for me? Maybe, maybe not. And so having the agility of heart, the agility of mind to be able to hone this skill down, to ask this question, to cultivate this Ability to engage the thinking mind, not to demonize the thinking mind, not to make the thinking mind into some sort of an enemy, but to appreciate this this potentially powerful tool we have for investigating. And how do we cultivate it? Well, we learn to train to be able to stop it. If it's compulsive, well, then it's proliferation. It's not contemplation. So we can... Stop the rampant, greedy, mm. ravenous thinking. I want to understand. I want to understand. Well, it's fine to want to understand, but is that 
really respectful? If we've got an appointment to meet the Buddha, what is the attitude? What attitude? You know, we would want to bow. We would want to be respectful. And likewise, our heart's aspiration for liberation is our invitation to meet the Buddha. Our heart's interest in being free from suffering is our invitation to meet the Dhamma. And so engaging our heart's aspiration for liberation, which manifests as these thoughts of, why am I suffering? What's going on here? Why, after all these years, do I still struggle with anger? Wanting to see our way through that beyond that is one thing, but greedily demanding is something else. So we get interested. We get interested. Well, how can I, how can I ask this question of what is the reality of resentment? Perhaps we're harboring a resentment that we've had for years, and it still really hurts. I call myself a Buddhist. Well, at least I respect the Buddha's teachings. Why aren't they helping me let go of this resentment? Now, the way we ask that question, hmm? and this is universal truth we're talking about. This is Dhamma here. This is not just a Buddhist belief system. You know, the, the Christians, similarly, uh, uh, many of you be familiar with the way that the Christians teaching on ask and ye shall be given, seek and ye shall find. But it's not just asking and seeking and that's going to give us what we're looking for. We've got to learn to ask in the right way. Hmm to seek with the right attitude. So asking our important questions, learning by looking at, is this working or not? Well, if it's not working, then maybe, well, perhaps I'll ask this question a different way. Ask it more gently. Ask it more quietly. Early on in my meditation practice, I came across the the power of inquiry in this way and just asking a question, how it would take attention deeper and, at the question of, you know, who is aware right now? Yeah. Could have a really helpful consequence. And it just happened spontaneously one day in my meditation. Was, yeah. So the question arose, uh, who's aware? Yeah. Something opens up to another level of stillness and clarity and so I'll practice more of this. What I found myself doing wasn't with that gentle, interested inquiry. I was like a machine gun. Who's aware? I'm trying to barge my way through obstacles in my mind. Yeah. Really unbecoming. Really not beautiful. But we learned from that. That's maybe how we start out. I mean, we can learn from that and say, well, that doesn't work. So we ask in a more gentle way. And then we don't just ask, but we also, once we ask, we stop and listen. I saw an interview with this Christian monk once, and he was considering the question at Easter about why was Christ crying? And he decided it was because he made all this effort and nobody was listening to him. So we don't just ask our important questions, but we also learn how to then be quiet. Now, I think this is, personally, this is I think one reason why 
Ajahn Sumedha's teaching on listening to the sound of silence is such a brilliant uh, technique in meditation for many people. It introduces us to listening. We can be so demanding in our attitude to spiritual practices. We don't slow down enough. We don't listen enough. So we don't get the response. So maybe if we find our own way into exercising the skills of uh, cultivating wise contemplation, not only do we start to find we can get a handle on our bitter resentment or whatever it is that's obstructing us, we start to be able to listen beyond it. We start to maybe hear that there's a silence behind all those voices or there's a stillness within which all that activity is taking place. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang damagataya sadhu karang dadamase sadhu sadhu sadhu